Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Wow, if uh, Solomon, the teacher, thought that around 930 B.C., he should see it today. He'd probably cry something like, meaningless, meaningless. They're literally trying to make everything meaningless. It's crazy, man. People in all aspects of life and society seem to want to erase everything about life and society. Why? Well, be sure it's not for any sort of a good reason. On today's episode, first we'll try not to dead name God, and then we'll talk about the timeless nature, the classy sophistication of modern art, art, bobart, banana, fana, fofart, fee, fi, fomart, art. So remember, never stand under a tree during a lightning storm, or or brimstone, and get out a formless, blah, lump of clay. Slap it down on the table. Voila, you're done. So now here we go. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary has, along with, I mean, just pretty much generally everything else, gone woke. This fact is not in question. Don't you dare question this fact. To back up my claim, somewhere between January 18th and January 26th of 2021, thank you, Wayback Machine, as we misinformation peddlers, anti-vaxxers spewed our, what we called them concerns, they called it lies, our concerns about the brand new mRNA COVID quote vaccine, they quietly modified the definition of vaccine in their online dictionary. Not to belabor the point, which pretty much means I'm going to belabor the point, but one of the concerns that was strongly and accurately voiced, chiefly by one of the inventors of the mRNA genetic therapy, was that calling this a vaccine didn't make it one. It was, and still is, quite literally an mRNA genetic manipulation therapy. As we're finding out, it works nothing like a vaccine at all, like like at all, in, in any way, yeah. Anyway, they changed their definition. They went from this, quote, a preparation of killed microorganisms, living attenuated organisms, or living fully virulent organisms that is administered to produce or artificially increase immunity to a particular disease. And then they moved it along to this, quote, a preparation that is administered, as by injection, to stimulate the body's immune response against a specific infectious disease. A, an antigenic preparation of a typically inactivated or attenuated, see attenuated sense too, pathogenic agent such as a bacterium or virus or one of its components or products such as a protein or toxin. B, a preparation of genetic material, such as a strand of synthesized messenger RNA that is used by the cells of the body to produce an antigenic substance, such as a fragment of a virus spike protein. <laughs> now that said, when you use their wokesionary, we find the word he means, quote, that male one who is neither speaker nor hearer. And also, quote, used in a generic sense 
or when the gender of the person is unspecified, or, quote, a male person or animal. And then just a little wokeness, but not quite there yet, quote, one that is strongly masculine or has strong masculine appeal. Okay. Jumping over to she, we find, quote, that female one who is neither speaker nor hearer, or, quote, used to refer to one regarded as feminine, also, quote, a female person or animal, oh, oop, a little woke over here, quote, used as an alternative to he to refer to a person of unspecified gender. And although, yes, that does happen these days, that's not the classical use. Doesn't matter. It's fine. Now let's take a look at they, shall we? This is where things start to kind of fall apart here. They <clears throat> start with, quote, those ones, those people, animals, or things. And then they move to, quote, used to refer to people in a general way or to a group of people who are not specified. Uh, okay, well, whoops, here we go. Now, quote, used with a singular indefinite pronoun antecedent. The example being, quote, no one has to go if they don't want to. And yes, <laughs> we, meaning you and I, lazily use it this way, but that is not the correct usage, regardless of what the dictionary says. Now, Going back to the earliest snapshot of this definition using the Wayback Machine, we go to December of 2005, and at, even at that point, they've always had a carve-out for it being used as a singular, but at some point they changed from saying that, yeah, people do use it that way, to, yes, that is one of the definitions. Now, why do I bring up definitions, woke dictionaries, singulars and plurals, well, because as we all know, this is being blurred across all of society. And now, found on NPR.org, headline, Gender-neutral terms for God are up for discussion, the Church of England says. Yeah. Uh, this is a thing that's been happening for a while. We've been slowly sliding into either a gender-neutral or gender-inclusive kind of Christianity. And why? Well, because what we can't have in this world is toxic masculinity. I mean, who do the writers of the Bible think they are using he and him all over the place? Hmm? So apparently the Church of England has been working on this little problem since 2014, according to the article, but they haven't come up with a solution yet. They need to hurry up, in my opinion, before this brainless woke ideology goes all the way around the horn back to sanity. But, but maybe that's what they're waiting for. I really doubt it, though. I guess the church just had a meeting of the General Synod, which, let's be honest, General Synod kind of sounds like a character in the Star Wars universe, doesn't it? Right? Just It's not just me, right? Anyway, they had their meeting, and we have one Reverend Joanna Stobert, the Vicar of Ilminster and White Lackington in South Somerset. And you have no idea how much I want that title. Well, she posed a question. Now, first of all, Joanna is a very odd name for a man. I'm assuming this is a man, as they <laughs> have the title of reverend. And if Paul, the one in the Bible, is to be believed, well, that's a no-no. Now, I know that's not one of those things we enforce anymore. I don't know why not, though. Well, I mean, I do know why. It's, it's not for biblical reasons. It's because we don't want to. Because, you know, hashtag toxic masculinity. Anyway, this female reverend that's not supposed to be a reverend, per the Bible she apparently reads and teaches, at least parts of, asked a question about, quote, where things stand in the move to adopt more inclusive language. 
Now, what the bishop should have said was, well, the Bible teaches complementarianism, not egalitarianism. So, although men and women are equal in the eyes of God with regard to salvation, they are not equal in their roles. In fact, all of the only two possible genders have specific roles that complement each other. So, inclusive language is a thing that doesn't exist. Rather, we use correct language as dictated by the writers of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible available. Curiously, that's... That's not what he said, though. No, Bishop Michael Ipgrave, vice chairman of the church's liturgical commission, said that they were currently studying that little issue, and they plan on launching a new project in the coming months to, quote, consider how gendered language should be used in reference to God. Oh, well, I'd imagine God threw his anthropomorphic hands up, slapped the arms of his royal throne, and said, well, it's about time. Unfortunately for the good Ms. Reverend, this kind of thing takes time. It would have to go through whatever overly complicated approval processes have been created for any sort of liturgical change. He continued, quote, There are absolutely no plans to abolish or substantially revise currently authorized liturgies, and no such changes could be made without extensive legislation. So he said they've been working on it since 2014. They're about to launch a new project to study it. It would have to go through an extensive approval process, but they have no plans to substantially change or eliminate the liturgies. It seems like they kind of do actually have those plans to change the liturgies. Just, just maybe not right this exact moment. Now, to give you an idea of the work I put into these segments for you, and also for me, and the amount of boiling down of information I try to do, I currently have about 35 Google Chrome tabs open to various websites with questions that came up while I was searching for an answer to a different question. This story made me curious on all sorts of levels, so I went hunting. First of all, Bibles have been changing for a while. I don't know for how long exactly, but quite a while. Take Leviticus 24.15, just a random verse. In the Young's Literal Translation, which is a very clunky, difficult to read, even more so than the King James Version, since this is more focused on trying to literally translate the Hebrew and Greek word for word, which makes it a very interesting but very difficult version to read. Well, this verse reads, quote, And unto the sons of Israel thou dost speak, saying, When any man revileth his God, then he hath borne his sin. So we see the following words, sons, man, his, he, and his. Moving to the NIV 1984 edition, some would say the last actual good translation of the NIV, we read, quote, Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Okay, so we see that some of the terms aren't there, but the NIV is a thought-for-thought translation, not word-for-word. That said, we still see his and he still in the masculine. The latest version of the NIV, we read, quote, Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Uh, uh-oh, did you catch it? We have the word anyone, which is singular, matched up with the plural there. That's a grammatical mistake. But it's not a woke, gender-inclusive mistake, is it? So, using Bible Hub which is a, a fantastic resource, we see that the NIV and the NLT incorrectly use the non-gendered they, while the God's Word translation, the Good News, and the New American Bible, not the New American Standard Bible, the New American Bible, and the New Revised Standard Version, 
all rearrange the language so as to avoid pronouns altogether. Quote, tell the Israelites, anyone who blasphemes God shall bear the penalty. So the question is, what was the original intent of the author? Let's go back to the original Hebrew. Thanks to the Blue Letter Bible, another great resource, this is fairly easy to do. Using the King James Version, this verse reads, quote, And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. So we have his twice, and in fact, in the Hebrew, apparently, his doesn't stand alone, at least not here, so we're looking at, quote, his God, and quote, his sin, phrases. Well, his God comes from the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, and Strong's Dictionary defines this word as a masculine noun. But when you look at the term for his sin, chet, or chet, H-E-T, well, that's a masculine noun also. Okay, So it's not a plural. It's not non-gendered, as most languages don't have non-gendered words, or at least it never used to. And it's not feminine. So why did other translations change it to they or rearrange it? In fact, if you look closer, the word whosoever is the Hebrew word ish, I-S, ish, which is also a masculine noun. So everything in that verse is masculine. Well, let's move to the New Testament, since that's written primarily in Greek. Let's take Matthew 18, 17. The King James Version says, quote, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Okay, we've got he and he and him and man. The Young's Literal Translation says, quote, And if he may not hear them, say it to the assembly, and if also the assembly he may not hear, let him be to thee as the heathen man and the tax gatherer. Again, he, he, him, and man. The NIV 1984 says, quote, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Again, we have he... I have to put a pause there, otherwise you think I'm giggling. He and him. As for the current NIV, quote, If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, keep in mind, this is speaking of a single person. This passage is not talking about a group of people being brought under church discipline. But we have they, and then they, and them all talking about a single individual. The NLT approaches it differently. Quote, If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Okay, well, at least they're grammatically correct, right? The person, he or she, and that person. But again, we see gender inclusivity here. So back to the Blue Letter Bible. Again, using the KJV as our base, the Greek uses a word for a concept. So we have the phrase, he shall neglect to hear, as the word parakuo. Yes, there is a trill in the R there, which is a verb, no gender specified, according to Strong's. And then we see the same for let him be, which is translated from the Greek esto. That's a simple verb. But then we get to heathen man which is the Greek ethnikos, ethnikos, which is a masculine noun. And even the Greek for publican or tax collector, telones, is also a masculine noun. 
So, by inference, if the him and the publican are masculine, then the entire verse is masculine, even the unspecified verbs, because it wouldn't make much sense to say, quote, and if he or she shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he or she neglect to hear the church, let him or her be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. That would literally be talking about transgenderism. If she didn't listen, now she's to be made a heathen man. It doesn't make sense. Now, although when speaking of a generic person, in every case, I think I can be confident saying in every case, the masculine term is being used as a generic term that covers both male and females. But we're seeing this kind of compromise in newer Bible translations, some with the goal of trying to be inclusive, since using he as the gender neutral isn't as common as it used to be, some with a very clear goal in mind that the Bible is patriarchal and toxic as historically written. Even the New American Standard Bible, the NASB, which is a very good translation, has capitulated to this inclusive translation stance in their 2020 version, which is what led John MacArthur and his team to develop the Legacy Standard Version Bible, the LSV, which is very close to the pre-2020 version of the NASB, with some more accurately translated verbiage with the latest understanding of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, and without the modern gender inclusivity for the sake of pandering and additions and pronoun modifications. Probably the worst example of this kind of political correctness was done in 1995 called the Inclusive Bible, subtitled, if you can subtitle a Bible, the First Egalitarian Translation. Oh, that sounds nice. For example, most of us know John 3.16 in the King James, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, in the inclusive version, we get, For God so loved the world that God gave God's only child, so that everyone who believes in that child may not perish, but may have eternal life. I mean, it just just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I'm assuming Awana will be adopting that one soon. It gets better, though. Let's look at the passage John 14, 16 through 18. First in the ESV, as that's my go-to version for right now, quote, And I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, you all know that one, more or less, right? You've all heard that before, right? Well, let's see what the inclusive version does with this. You may want to sit down or pull over to the side of the road. Quote, Jesus said, I will ask the one who sent me to give you another paraclete, another helper to be with you always, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, since the world neither sees her nor recognizes her, but you can recognize the spirit because she remains with you and will be within you. I won't leave you orphaned like children without a parent. Okay, so they've decided that the Holy Spirit is a she. I wonder if they had a gender reveal party. They decided this, I don't know, just because, I guess. I I guess I don't really care why. It's a garbage translation, just a woke reading of the Bible. But looking a little deeper, because I can't just not care why, they translated as she because the word for him in verse 17 is the Greek word autos, which can be either gender. The problem is that the him that the autos referred to in verse 17 is first spoken of in verse 16 as the comforter or the helper. The Greek for that is parakletos or parakletos, which is a 
masculine noun. So if he's masculine when first mentioned, what happened a sentence later? Yeah, see, this is what you find when you translate words individually rather than words while understanding the words around the words and the context of what you're translating, especially when you have an agenda to push. And I mean, the deeper you go, the worse it gets. I came across the, no lie here, Queen James Bible. You ever heard of this one? This is one where the editors took the King James, I'm assuming it's all King James, and modified the eight key verses where God prohibits homosexuality because of course they do this. So for a few examples, in the story of Sodom, where the men of the town are trying to get Lot to send out the men, the angels, to the crowd, the KJV says, quote, bring them out unto us that we may know them. But the QJV says, quote, bring them out unto us that we may rape and humiliate them. See, the sin was the rape and humiliation, not the homosexuality. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul is giving a list of those considered unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God, including in the KJV, quote, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. But the QJV says, quote, nor morally weak, nor promiscuous. Oh, that seems to be a bit of a stretch right there. But the coupe de grasse, Romans 1, the end of the chapter, has some of the clearest language about homosexuality possible. Verse 27 in the KJV says, quote, And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. The ESV is clear, in my opinion, quote, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. But in the QJV, we somehow get to, quote, men with men working that which is pagan and unseemly. For this cause, God gave the idolaters up unto vile affections, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. Ah, so, so this was because of idolatry, apparently. Now, that said, the QJV has a nice little rainbow cross on the front. It's very inclusive. But since it's from, like, you know, 2012, they don't have all the colors of the new inclusive flag. Shortly after that new flag came out, I took a snip of the infinite color palette inside of Excel, pasted it on my Facebook page, saying that I've just created the newest and greatest LGBT infinity inclusive rainbow flag. Now... That being said, I also stumbled across an article entitled, quote, God Made the Rainbow, Why the Bible Welcomes a Gender Spectrum. See, this is where the modern-day brainless activists really drive me crazy. The gay rainbow, I guess we'll just call that the gainbow, has six colors, not the seven in the real rainbow. The one that's created by God. Remember the real rainbow? God gave us Roy G. Biv. The gays took out indigo, which, let's be honest, has the gayest sounding name of all of those seven colors. But whatever, they didn't ask me. So they have Roy G. Buh. But the agenda pushers are pretty sure that the rainbow was created to promote gay causes and not as a promise to all of man that God will never destroy the earth with a flood again. Uh, pro tip going forward, if you're one that wants to screw with the Bible, you may want to get some SPF 12 billion sunblock for the next destruction of the earth. Just, just saying. Was that too crass? That feels too crass. Anyway, now, hopefully I didn't bore you with that little lesson on rewriting the Bible based on agenda, political correctness, and woke ideologies in relation to homosexuality, inclusiveness, and gender, because this brings us back full circle to the article at hand discussing how to use gender-neutral terms for God. 
that would actually be fine. It'd be just fine and okay if God, through the pen of many authors over many years spanning two main languages, referred to itself or they self as a gender neutral. The problem is he didn't do that. In every case, in every instance of the use of God or the Father or whatever, he used a masculine term. Remember, most languages have feminine and masculine forms of words. God, in the Greek, in the New Testament, quite often was the word theos, a masculine noun. The term for goddess, the feminine, would be thea. We don't see that in reference to God in the New Testament, like anywhere. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, we see quite often Elohim, a masculine noun. The feminine noun in Hebrew for goddess is elah, E-L-A-H. A law. Once again, this is not connected to God in the Old Testament ever. Now, moving on from there, there are some that claim that the term Shekinah is a feminine version of God, his feminine side of love and mercy, etc., etc. I guess wrath and anger is more masculine, right? No, who knows? The problem is that Shekinah isn't used in the Bible. The Jewish priests started using this term a few hundred years later, at least a few hundred years later. The word, however, is most closely associated with God's glory, such as Exodus 16, 7a, and in the morning, then ye shall see the glory of the Lord. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which is a masculine noun. At no time has or will a feminine term be used for God in the Bible, not when going back to the original manuscripts. In fact, the best I think anyone could possibly do to try to push this narrative would be to use the word Yehovah or Jehovah, the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H we've translated to Yehovah or Jehovah. This is most often written in English as LORD in all caps. This doesn't have a gender necessarily, but that's most likely because it's not just a standard noun. It's a name. It's a proper noun, a name that refers to deity, the name of God. That deity, I said God, is always referred to in the masculine, either by himself or by others. So his name is that of a masculine identifying God. That's like the old song, A Boy Named Sue. You name a boy Sue, well, first of all, you should be smacked for doing that to the poor kid, but the reality is the name doesn't affect the gender. The gender gives the name its gender. So if a boy is named Sue, well, in that case, Sue happens to be a male name. Think of Chris or Pat or Jesse. Those names are accepted as gender-neutral names. The gender of the name is dictated by the gender of the person that has the name. So Jehovah can be translated in no other way but male. So clearly the Bible was written a very specific way. Clearly God, although not actually physically male as he's a spirit, identifies as male. And Jesus, who is God, did come to earth as a male. Unless you decide to divorce yourself from biblical context and focus only on a word-by-word translation, like literally every single word and its own entity to be translated wholly unto itself, and unless you like a little or a lot of heresy with your Bible, you can literally not ever come up with a non-gendered or feminine-gendered God. That said, clearly God made male and female— Clearly, God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And since we know that God, who although not a man, not a physical being, is the epitome of perfection, perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, etc., etc., but also perfectly masculine, perfectly feminine, perfectly logical, perfectly emotional, he clearly parsed out certain aspects of his image to man and some to women. Women are generally more emotional. 
men are generally more logical. Now, sin has marred even this, so now there are pros and cons and some blurring of the lines, but in general, this is how we were designed. And for all of those not given the gift of singleness, this is why the spouse of a different gender fits best. Think about it. Even in marriages where the woman is more masculine, you'll find the man more feminine. In gay relationships, you find that one person is more masculine, one is more feminine. In the ultimate brain buster, you see this in transgender couples. A boy pretending to be a girl will find a girl pretending to be a boy, where the he playing a she is more feminine and the she playing a he is more masculine, and it's some sort of perverted bastardized form of heterosexuality. These combinations are true almost every single time. So, if God is perfect in all aspects, why can't we just refer to God as a he or a she or a they if we want? It seems like no big deal. And I totally agree, it wouldn't be a big deal. If he didn't refer to himself, if the Holy Spirit didn't inspire all biblical writing to refer to God as a male. See, we petty, puny, created humans like to shout to the heavens that, you know, I have the right to choose my gender. But no, <laughs> no, no, you don't. I have the right to choose my pronouns. Well, not according to your gender and the rules of grammar and syntax, you don't. The only being in all of eternity that has the right to choose a preferred gender and preferred pronoun is literally God. He could have done anything he wanted, and he did. He chose the male gender. Now, I think we see why throughout the scriptures, right? The man is supposed to be the head of the household and the spiritual head. He is supposed to be the leader, the protector, the provider. The woman is supposed to be the nurturer, the preparer, the helpmeet equal in the eyes of God, but very different with very distinct roles in the family and in the church and in the world in general. Again, both the male and female have certain responsibilities, but the male is supposed to be ultimately responsible for the church, for the flock, for the family. Of course, sin and our own selfish hearts and greedy lusts have screwed this up as well, but in general, this still holds approximately true. This is why I'm not anti-woman, but I am adamantly anti-feminist. That is an anti-biblical tall finger in the face of God movement. Okay, so let's wrap this up, shall we? As this has gone on probably way longer than I intended. Hopefully you found it interesting. Will the Church of England and other churches move to gender-neutral terms for God and gender-inclusive language? Yes, they absolutely will. Will they make large changes to their historical liturgies because of this? Yes, they pretty much have to. Will most accepted as Christian denominations make this change in the coming years? Oh yeah, they sure will. At least, if we stay on the same trajectory we're currently on, they will. As I've said before, I see glimmers of hope that the woke, agenda-driven, postmodern, progressive, satanic movement is faltering. Cracks are lengthening and joining up in the dam, holding back sanity, logic, and true truth. But for the moment, the path we're on is one that we'll see most denominations full-out blaspheme God to his face. The question is, what are you going to do? Personally, you need to be ready for this. You need to be ready to fight against this. Does that mean that you need to get rid of, or at a minimum, back shelf that Bible that's already capitulated to some degree? Maybe. Maybe it's time to look into translations that respect the actual original manuscripts. The NIV 1984, the NASB prior to the 2020 version, the ESV, the KJV, the new LSV. What happens if this comes to your church or your denomination? Well, you can fight for a time, but if the fight is lost, are you prepared to shake the dust off your dress shoes and find a church that teaches the actual Bible, sans the woke, politically correct agenda? Because you need to be. One thing I sometimes like about Facebook is the way it pops up memories from this day X number of years ago. I post a lot of political and religious stuff on my page. I know, shocker. And when I get something that pops up from a handful of years ago and I compare it to now, 
Oh, yeah, trust me. Within a few years, not only the Church of England, but many other denominations will fall in part or as a whole to the constant onslaught of Satan and his agenda to destroy humanity and assume the throne of heaven. What we can stand firm on, though, is that the Bible has survived this long. It's not going anywhere. That's not because it's magical. It's not because you and I will be Mad Max-style warriors fighting to protect the last actual copy of the King James Bible, the one that the Apostle Paul himself read. It's because God has promised to protect his word. And that includes every jot, every tittle, and every gender found in the writings. So I gotta be honest. I'm, uh, I'm kind of pre-annoyed with you. Why, you ask? Well, look, you'd be annoyed too if you knew that you were going to be called a liar in just a few minutes. And even worse, if you knew you were going to be called a liar for multiple weeks in a row. But here we are. You absolutely think I'm a liar. Just not yet. Well, despite your horrible accusations against me, I still feel it's my duty to welcome you to part six of our look at the Communist Goals for America. Now, as a reminder, as I've reminded you in the past, I I believe pretty much every episode at this point, this was a list that was first contained in the 1958 W. Cleon Skousen, if I'm saying that right, book entitled The Naked Communist and was subsequently read into the congressional record by Congressman Albert S. Erlong Jr., a Democrat from Florida in 1963. Now, I want you to keep those dates in mind, 1958-1963. Now, I know for a a fact that there are at least some people listening right now that look back on the 50s, maybe even the 60s. It's just a wonderful time. The the colors were brighter. The TVs were black and whiter. The the cars were better. The morals were more morally, and generally it was a much better time. And I'd probably have to agree that, uh, yeah, overall, that's probably true. But remember, Communist Goals for America, 1958, read into the record, 1963. So seeing as how we finished the last episode with goal number 18, I figured the only logical thing to do is uh, start with goal number 19. (laughs) Uh, Goal number 19, quote, use student riots to foment public protests against programs or organizations which are under communist attack. University of California, Berkeley, December 1964, 1,500 students protested when members of the free speech movement were expelled from the school. University of Wisconsin, October 1967, protest turned riot on campus as Dow chemical recruiters showed up on the campus. Dow was the maker of napalm and the students were protesting the Vietnam War. Columbia University, April 1968, upon announcing the future construction of a rec center that would have limited access for blacks in Harlem, and in part protesting the Vietnam War, about 1,000 students occupied various buildings, turned violent when the cops showed up. Kent State University, May 1970, protest turned violent, protesting the invasion of Cambodia. Jackson State College, 11 days later in May of 1970, protest turned violent, also protesting the invasion of Cambodia. And the list goes on and on and on. Now, today, most riots revolve around sporting events, right? Your team loses, destroy everything. Your team wins, 
destroy everything. But we've also recently had protests and riots whenever the media or politicians uh, tell us that a black man was killed because of white supremacy, which is nearly 100% of the time untrue. We've had the Black Lives Matter protests, the Michael Brown protests, the George Floyd protests, and on and on. The wars, of course, have always been popular protest and riot fodder as well. Most recently, protests about the war in Ukraine. We had protests because Donald Trump became president. We've had protests because certain media personalities of the wrong political persuasion would dare set foot on the college campus. We've had the Occupy Wall Street protests, equal rights protests, abortion rights protests. And the list is just unending. Now, admittedly, not all protests turned into riots. We are guaranteed the right in the Constitution to peacefully protest. And the not all protests or riots were for specifically communist causes. But as we work our way through this list over the next few weeks, I think that uh, it's more than we would guess were at least in the right communist direction, whether that was the intent or not. More importantly, though, the children in college campuses, and that's not being derogatory since we're told that humans aren't solid in the old brain thinking until the age of 26, so technically they're still growing children, we've been taught that the students, the children, have all the answers, and the Marxist professors are more than happy to work through these useful idiots to create strife, destruction, oh, and change. Uh, this has even trickled down to at least some degree to high schools and politicians that feel 16-year-olds should be able to vote in our national elections. So did the communists attain their goal of using student riots to foment public protests against programs or organizations which are under communist attack? Well, I mean, personally, I would say that they absolutely did, but I want to be fair, so I'm going to give them a half check. And that brings us to 12 of 19 goals accomplished. Goal number 20, quote, infiltrate the press, get control of book review assignments, editorial writing, policy-making positions. Well, let me just say, thank goodness that has not happened. <laughs> so the free press is supposed to be the fourth estate, right? They're supposed to be the ultimate check and the balance on our governments, both federal and local. They're supposed to dig through the dirt and push past the fluff, find the real story, and regardless of who it hurts or what it does to the image of this country, they report the facts. And then they let you and I take a stand on it from there. Well, editorials are different, right? Those are opinion pieces. In theory, if the press followed the demographics of the country, you'd have a small number of fringe philosophies like communism or the Green Party, and about a 50-50 split of the rest between the left and the right-leaning for all these editorials. Now, is that what we see? <sighs> Can we even see a distinction between news reporters and editorialists anymore? And, and I'd say on the right or the left on that one. I'd argue that we're being inundated with leftist ideology, mostly, which is only a quarter step away from communism at this point. And the few right-wing sources are relegated to mostly radio stations, usually on the AM band or at the extreme ends of the FM dial. There are a few newspapers, a few networks that are on the right, but as we've just recently seen with AT&T, those right-wing sources really don't have a platform. Not really. 
Now I'm going to leave a link to a media bias chart from allsides.com uh, in the notes. It shows 30 left-center and left-leaning news sources, and this is all online sources, and they're not counting TV, print, or radio, and then 24 right-center and right-leaning sources, and 11 that are right down the center. <sighs> Problem is this chart made in 2022 has sources like The Hill and BBC and Newsweek as center centrist sources and these sources and a few others that are in the middle there are easily in the left center if not hard left categories eh, looking at their list i came up with a count of 36 lefties to 24 on the right with five in the middle and then if you look at the money and the influence behind the sources well the picture skews even harder left as for book reviews, I, you know, all I'm going to say is this, because I don't know a whole lot about the book review process, but I do know this. The number one bestsellers aren't always the books with the most sales. More often than not, they're the book with the best combination of sales and agenda. Finally, regarding policymaking, we all know that those in the Congress, both the House and the Senate, they have a full binder of bills just sitting there, ready to go as soon as the session starts. But do we seriously think they're writing these thousand-page bills? Do we seriously think they even know what's in them? I mean, as Nancy Pelosi famously said, quote, we have to pass the bill so that you can find out what is in it away from the fog of controversy. <laughs> what? I mean, shouldn't we know what's in it and figure out why there may be a fog of controversy before voting on it? But no, what she said is 100% correct. They don't know what's in the bill, nor do they care. I mean, this is like Christmas. Just follow the party line, pass the bill, and then the policymakers will inform everyone what they just passed. Yeah, see, we have no idea who is actually even writing the bills. That's when I say we, I mean you and I, we have no idea who's actually writing the bills that we are being saddled with all through every single year. I think the Obama and the Biden administrations were very clearly hard socialist left, if not flat out Marxist policy writers. Now, is there any further discussion needed here? I mean, I, I don't think so. Although, the commies haven't taken over the press, exactly, or the media, whatever. I'd have to check this one for them. They have absolutely infiltrated, like their goal said, infiltrated these different pieces of media, pieces of the press. They've taken control of book review assignments and book ratings. I'm almost positive of that. They're clearly not only editorial writing, but flat-out news writing, and there's no question that we've got full-blown communists writing policies, so I'm going with 13 of 20 at this point. Goal number 21, quote, gain control of key positions in radio, TV, and motion pictures. So, I mean, this is basically the same thing, right? When you've got John Cena apologizing to the Chinese for whatever it was that he supposedly did or didn't do, I don't really care. When you have Finn, a black man, that's the character, a black man in the Star Wars The Force Awakens poster for the United States, he filled a prominent position on the right side of the poster. But for China, he was shrunken way down and kind of moved back behind a much larger BB-8 and partially obscured by the glow of a lightsaber. That was all done for the Chinese audience. 
I think we're, we're about there, right? Have we hit this goal? And this isn't the only example. A number of things have been added, deleted, or changed for primarily the Chinese audience. In fact, Communist China is in many ways dictating what movies are being developed at this point and what they'll contain. Of course, this is probably still more profit-driven than agenda-driven, uh, at least, you know, from the producers and actors and, you know, the Hollywood types. I would say, but not entirely, though, right? Uh, it's not like these creators and studios have, uh, you know, really any moral objections to communist China or communism in general. I mean, the communist agenda is to destroy this country to the point that they can take it over, right? Or, or at least maybe that it just kind of topples toward communism and embraces it as it slinks to the ground, gasping for air. So anywhere we shove in perverse agendas, woke agendas, racist or anti-racist agendas, it's better for them. It breaks us down, right? I believe that communists or communist sympathizers, for our purposes, we would call them socialists, have taken control of TV for sure. Movies, I would say in large part. The medium that they have never been able to get a hold of, though, is radio. And that's because it's an obsolete form of media at this point. I mean, sure, some people still listen to the radio, but it's, it's not many people anymore, not like what it used to be. And we're looking at news, currents, events, etc. on the radio. It's still very heavily conservative. So I will also be conservative and give this one a half a check, even though, boy, I, I think we're really close to being a full check on that one. It's okay, though. 13.5 out of 21. Can you start to see why I prophesied you calling me a liar? I mean, these goals are from 1958 and 1963. Remember, those are the two dates we had. Are you starting to feel like someone wrote them just a few years ago? No? Not yet? Okay, well, let's move on then, shall we? Goal number 22. Quote, Continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. An American communist cell was told to, quote, eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, substitute shapeless, awkward, and meaningless forms. Okay, now, don't get ahead of me here. We're just talking sculpture at this point. So it used to be that we would have statues and busts and carvings, etc., that actually look like things and, and look like people. Think of all the presidents and the generals and the founders, most of which have been taken down now, of course. Think of the Lincoln Memorial, the Statue of Liberty. If you've ever seen the Kirk Cameron documentary Monumental, the National Monument to the Forefathers in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The kid and I actually went to see it in person. It was just awe-inspiring. Think of the buildings of the early to mid-20th century with various statues. But now, what do we have? Well, we got some big shiny blob in Chicago, whatever that demonic statue thing is that was put on the courthouse in New York that I talked about a few episodes back. We have collections of shapes and basically scrap and junk that are welded together, called something, and then everyone stands around and oohs and ahs and says how wonderful it is. No, it's not. It's garbage. I mean, everything is abstract today, right? <laughs> no, they're blobs. I mean, seriously, it's not abstract. It's just a blob. Now, I've said before, I'm not an art critic, although I'm critical about art, but I'm not an art critic. But shouldn't art mean and represent something? I mean, I can JB weld a bunch of bent silverware together and call it something like uh, the repressed mind of the reluctant housewife or something like that and make a million dollars. Hmm. Wait a minute. I called it. That's my idea. There, said it. The only people these masses of metal or stone mean anything to 
are the creator, and I would say that's only sometimes, the guy that gets duped into spending any money on it, and then a handful of critics that desperately want to be cutting-edge and free-thinking, smarter-than-you type individuals. Doesn't this goal sound like it was ripped out of the headlines today? I mean, eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings. What have we been doing for the last couple of years? We call something fascist or racist or oppressive in some fashion, and then we tear it down. At least a few cities have had enough synapses firing to remove and store these sculptures as this woke idiocy or this communist ideology. It must eventually end, right? I think we can give the Reds a full check on this one, don't you? 14.5 out of 22. Now, I think one more before we wrap up this episode as it relates to goal number 22. Goal number 23, quote, control art critics and directors of art museums. Quote, our plan is to promote ugliness, repulsive, meaningless art. Huh. Uh-huh. Again, I know that art is subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But how many of you remember the controversy of the so-called artwork, Piss Christ? This was from 1987, a crucifix submerged in a jar of urine. I remember this being one of the most controversial things ever, right? I believe it went to court for the right to display it, and of course it won, right? As a right of freedom of speech, somehow. Now, there have always been blasphemous, macabre arts, just plain gross art, But doesn't it seem like it's getting worse? The classics are still the classics. And for now, what I would call the real museums are still displaying the true masters. But the modern era, say the last 50 or 60 years, what's been going on? We've just created sickening art using various bodily fluids and waste products. We have demented, demonic works of so-called art. We have anything a twisted mind can concoct together being called art. And then we have the third rail of their goal, the meaningless art. Did you hear about the piece of art from everyone's favorite artist? Say it with me. Piet Mondrian. Mon, Mon, yep, Mondrian. I think that's... Anyway, that was displayed upside down for 75 years, apparently. Now, it looks like strips of yellow, red, and blue duct tape, but they probably didn't have duct tape in the various colors, at least, back then. But it looks like that, all laid on top of each other, kind of interwoven, making just, uh, you know, just square shapes. And why was it upside down for so long? Because there's literally no way to know, right? It's basically the same no matter what you do. It's just a bunch of strips of tape. How about the Banksy uh, painting that as soon as it was sold for $1.4 million at Sotheby's in 2018... The painting dropped through the bottom of the frame, halfway down, through a built-in shredder. (laughs) Oh, cute. Uh, Danish artist Jens Haining was commissioned by a Danish museum to create some art. He was paid $84,000 prior to his submission. He gave them two blank canvases entitled Take the Money and Run, and then told them it was a commentary on poor wages. They demanded the money was returned to them. I don't know if it ever was. I kind of hope it wasn't. Serves them right. There are stories of people admiring the frame of a piece of art that's been removed for cleaning, thinking that the framed nothing was the actual art. There are stories of people filing past a blank wall in an art gallery, admiring it for its minimalism. Now, maybe those stories are true, maybe they aren't, but would it actually shock anyone if they were true? 
Does modern art really have any meaning at all today? Do we have many artists left that can actually create masterpieces rather than just idiocy? Was Bob Ross the last of the greats? But why do the communists want to destroy sculptures and art in the United States? I'd argue for a few reasons, and I'm sure there's probably plenty more that you can come up with. But first, if you remove statues of actual people, whether they were heroes or villains, you also remove the curiosity of Americans. Who was that? Were they good or bad? What did they stand for? When you have a shiny blob in the middle of Chicago, you get people saying, take my picture, I look funny in the reflection. There's no thought, there's no wonder, there's no pondering, there's just brainlessness. And if you move to meaningless pieces of art, again, you drain the population of any higher level thinking. They can stand around and sip wine talking about what those strips of duct tape might mean to them, but don't listen to those conversations long or your brain will try to escape through your ear hole. The more mindless, basic, twisted, and demented the population becomes, the more easily it is to fool them or to wow them or convince them of practically anything. With no heroes and no representations of villains, with the constant drumbeat of leftist propaganda from all media sources, utilizing children to scream and shout about stuff that they have no clue about in this world that they don't understand, and then the rest of us being told to shut up and listen to the kids, they know what they're talking about. We're at a point where nobody has the ability to think their way out of a corn maze made up of one lone stalk in the center of the field. And I'm afraid to say, this is just the start. If you thought any of these goals were pulled out of the news today rather than 65 years ago, oh, oh, just wait until the next episode. This list isn't getting any better, and the road we've already traveled is getting scarier and scarier the farther we go down the list. Speaking of, I have to give a full check to the art goal. We no longer create art. We create absolute garbage, either from its pointlessness or from its degeneracy. I could easily go through some of these so-called galleries and throw out every single waste of canvas, metal, wood, and space in there without a second thought. And the world will never miss it, right? They would never, ever miss it. Give it a week and nobody would even care. Now try that with the Mona Lisa, or the Statue of David, or the Thinker, or look how much trouble Mr. Bean got in when he destroyed Whistler's mother, right? So with that, We're going to give that a check on the art, and we're going to sit at 15.5 of 23, slightly worse than how we left off the last episode. And I guess we'll leave it at that. And since this was in part an art-focused segment, let me leave you with a few quotes from one of the masters, Leonardo da Vinci. Quote, Learning is the only thing the mind never exhausts, never fears, and never regrets. Quote, As a well-spent day brings happy sleep, so life well used brings happy death. Quote, Your brain is much better than you think. Just use it. Ah, <sighs> true words, true words. Well, I guess I'll go sneeze on a piece of notebook paper, put it in a frame, smash it under the glass, and see what I can get on eBay for it. Hey, bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.